Howdy, and welcome to another episode of Adult Onset Horsemanship. I'm your host, Daniel Dolphin. Our guest today is Mr. Richard Winters, perhaps best known as the father of Sarah Dawson. He's also the father of a Coast Guard rescue swimmer. He is now a native of Weatherford, Texas, but he hails originally from California and the Vaquero traditions of that era. He is the 2009 Road to the Horse winner. He is competed in cowboy dressage and now competes in rain cow horse. And even as an owner, he and his daughter, Sarah, has piloted Shine Smarter to the NRCHA finals in 2015, the Reserve Ladies Championship, the Limited Open Championship, the Snaffle Bit Futurity, Resident uh, Reserve Intermediate Champion, and fifth in the Open. The next year with another horse, fifth in Doolin Form or Doolin Tom and a whole bunch of other stuff. He's absolutely doesn't need an introduction. Mr. Richard, I'm, I'm thrilled to have you here today. Thank you for agreeing to come on the podcast. Daniel, it is my pleasure. Thank you for the invitation. We start everybody off with the lightning round questions, and these are for points, so you want to be on your A game, all right? I know a competitor is yourself. You'd, you'd want a good score here. So, all right, I want to win a prize. Our first uh, question is, if you were a Jedi, what percent chance would there be you would use the Force inappropriately? Zero. Zero? Not even a float that coffee cup to you across the room or something like that? <laughs> no? <laughs> Morning or evening? Both. Bay or Sorrel? Bay. Say this with every one of these. That's one of those questions I thought would be about 50-50, and it's not even close. It's an 80 or 90% people on bay horses. Oh, that's I, funny. I find that shocking. Yes, sir. Dogs or cats? Neither. Neither? Really? Okay. Do you have a favorite other animal other than horses? Cows. Cows? <laughs> All right. Does pineapple belong on pizza? If you're buying... If there are good essential oils, do you think it's fair to say that there must also be evil essential oils? No. Just evil oils. Do you have a horse industry-related pet peeve? Oh, my goodness. Yes, people that own horses that don't ride them, that are physically capable of riding them. People sit around and talk about their horses, show you pictures about their horses, but they don't ride their horses and they wonder why their horses aren't getting better. You got to ride them. We will definitely talk more about that later. Do you have a preference if you were to deal with a horse between one that is feral or one that is spoiled? I don't think either one is optimum, but I'll take the spoiled horse. Would you tell us something unexpected about you? I used to fly airplanes. Okay. That's cool. I tell this story sometimes, but the best perk I ever got as a clinician, I did a clinic in South Carolina, right next to the Marine base over there, Paris Island and the air station. And one of the ladies husbands was the former F-18 squadron commander. And he got me an hour and 15 minutes in the F-18 Hornet simulator. <laughs> that was super cool. Let me tell you. <laughs> That is pretty cool. I've never done anything that cool. 
If you could have any superpower, what superpower would you choose? The ability to not do stupid things. I would like to transfer that one over to my teenage son if I could. Um, <laughs> thoughts or feelings? Thoughts. Are you decisive or indecisive? I'm not sure. We have to think about it. Excellent answer. What is the best smell in the barn? Horses. Do you like them fresh and clean or a little bit sweaty or, or just all the time? I like them fresh and clean, and I like to get them hot and sweaty. <laughs> all right. Sweet, salty, or spicy? I got a sweet tooth, that's for sure. What is your favorite dinosaur or deep sea creature? I do not have one. <laughs> All right. All right. Well, we'll call it right there. I'm going to award you 1,318 points, which makes you our high score of this game thus far. And that entitles you either to an awkward silence or a genuine compliment. Your choice. I was just fixing to give you my mailing address so you can mail me my, my prize. But uh, I guess the satisfaction of a job well done is what I'll go with. Okay. All right. Well, Mr. Richard, would you please give us kind of the 30,000-foot view of what it is that you do within the horse industry, where you sort of see your place and, and what you're doing these days? Well, I have often said that I am by no means – the biggest fish in the pond, but I am in the pond and I've been in the pond a long time. And I remind myself any day that I wake up a little bit grumpy or any day that somebody asks me the same redundant question I've heard 10,000 times. So you know what, Richard, you, you get to do right now what all these people around you only dream of getting to do. You know how many people out there that work some job, you know, 360 days out of the year so they can go spend a week or two doing something they want to do. And I get paid to do during the week what I would pay to do on the weekend if I wasn't getting paid for it during the week. And so, uh, yeah, I've got about 40-something years into this deal now. And it seems like here in the last few years, there's been a little shift. I did my first clinic um, 35 years ago, I think, kind of caught that bandwagon before it had gotten all the way out of town. And uh, it took us all over the world. What a, what a privilege we had to meet so many people and go to so many places we never would have gone. Here recently, it's kind of been a, a shift. For so long, I would schedule all my clinics at the beginning of the year and then fit in a horse show around it if I could. In all reality, I'm scheduling horse shows now throughout the year and fitting in a clinic around it. So uh, not doing near as many clinics anymore, but uh, – training exclusively the rain cow horses that are on track to be shown that way. Of course, that's what our kids do. You uh, you alluded to it earlier. Yes, my business card says Sarah Dawson's dad. That's about all people know me by anymore, but uh, I'll take it. And uh, my lovely wife, Cheryl, of uh, 38 years, she has turned into the full-time nanny of raising that little girl from Chris and Sarah Dawson because they were both full-time trainers and my wife wouldn't have it any other way although it's uh, somewhat exhausting, yet she finds it very fulfilling and she can't imagine letting some stranger do it. Uh, but we still go out and do some clinics. Um, 
train a pile of horses right here. And it's interesting that I can be so satisfied with so little recognition because I would go to clinics and in all reality, there's a fairgrounds or a private venue, whatever, pretty good chance I was the best horseman there. And people patted me on the back and told me what a good job I did. And they said, wow, you do, your skills are unbelievable. Well, I'm not doing that so much anymore. I'm going to horse shows and they don't even know how to spell my last name at the horse show. And there are a lot of people there who are a lot better than me. But I, this interests me so much and I am passionate enough about my horsemanship. I have decided that I, I just can't, I just can't read my own press releases and be satisfied with that. I just can't go to a clinic and have somebody pat me on the back and tell me I've done a good job. I've got to get around people who are better than me. And uh, that's what being involved in the cow horse deal. Of course, it starts right here with my own daughter and son-in-law who, I mean, they're the best in the business. Uh, you look at the numbers, I guess my, my daughter is just, you know, she's right at the top right now. Uh, so, so that's what we're doing. We just get up every morning uh, and ride some really nice horses and, Sometimes they need a little better pilot, but uh, I'm what they got for now. So I'm just trying to figure it out. The only scary thing is I'm 60 years old and I'm running out of time. And I got more questions now than I've ever had. That's kind of exciting, though. Wouldn't it be boring if you could figure it all out? You know, it's it's nice to still have challenges in front of you and all. So every time I, I kind of think I've got it figured out, a whole new room opens up in front of me. And I realize I just wasn't nearly seeing the whole map, you know, so. That's a good I think deal. that's right. And I think as we continue in our horsemanship, it's like climbing the mountains. You think I'm going to get to the top of that hill. That's going to be so great when I get up there. When you get up there, there is a certain amount of satisfaction. But now you see mountains that you couldn't see until you got to the top of that hill. And so I'm asking questions now that I didn't even know to ask them 10 years ago, 20 years ago. But every time I, I make a new discovery or or master a certain task, it just opens up a whole new vista of new things to learn and work on. And yeah, it's never ending. And that's why on the side of my trailer, it says, enjoy the journey, because <laughs> you're not going to get to the destination. You might as well just enjoy the journey. Mr. Richard, would you tell us a little bit about how you got started? I, I know you, you kind of have some of the Vaquero background and that sort of stuff, but uh, it seems to me from what I've seen of you, you don't necessarily follow the tradition rigidly. You you kind of do some other things here and there throughout. So so how how did you sort of get your start with horses and all? And, and you know, what was the path for you there? Yeah, you bet you. Interestingly enough, um, I did not have any childhood opportunities as far as my family was concerned. We were uh, my sister and I were raised in town. Uh, my dad was a pastor of a large church. My mother was a nurse. And until their dying day, they never knew a thing about horses. We never had horses. But for whatever reason, and, and my sister and I kind of broke the stereotype because most of the time it's the little girls that love horses. She never thought a thing about horses, but I was a little boy. That's all I ever wanted to be was a cowboy and a horseman, if I even knew what that was. And I think I purchased my first horse when I was – maybe eight or nine years old. I remember uh, getting the price on it and saving my money. And I believe it was $2 and 89 cents at Kmart. And his, his head would go up and down on a hinge. And I took some string of my mom's and I put it 
around the legs of a dining room chair, and, I, and he lived in that corral right there, and that was my first horse. But when I was in grade school, I found this stable, and you don't see stables like this very much anymore. It, it, it had an English component to it, and a lot of kids that were upper middle class had English jumping horses there, took lessons, but they had this dude string, and used to be every town had a dude string, you know, but I think liability and different things, they shut them down. And uh, for $2.50 back in the early 70s, you could rent a horse there. And I was seven miles from our house and I would pedal my bicycle out there and I would plan my whole day around that one hour that I would get to ride that horse. And I was just the proverbial stable brat. I didn't have any business there. I just hung out there and the owner said, kid, what are you doing here? And but little by little, I begin to I get there really early and I help the old man saddle up all the dude horses. And uh, they they fed and cleaned stalls with a horse and wagon. And I'd help them hitch up the horse and, and go around and feed. And then uh, after a period of time, oh, it wasn't hardly in junior high. I don't think I was taking out those dude rides. And and uh, they, they called us chasers. You think about leading dudes down the trail, you being in front and all those dudes following you. We'd get in behind them with a stock whip and kind of haze those horses along, you know, to, to make them go around this little eight acre field in a big old loop. And, and so now I was like part of the deal and I was, you know, 12, 13, something like that. And, and then along about that time, and since you said this podcast is going to go for six hours, I'm going to give you the long version of sure. this. Uh, and, and hopefully this part of the story might encourage somebody maybe even myself, to to be this person at some point in somebody's life. But there was a guy, his name was Robert K. West. I think he's since passed away. Everybody called him Doc West because he was a surgeon and in the ER at a big hospital in Fresno, California, um, but a pretty avid roper. He loved to team rope and he loved to calf rope. And he had four horses and he kept them out at this stable. And again, it had a real... It was an English-dominated stable, um, but he was a Western guy, and he would come out, where he had this uh, great big long Cadillac, and he'd pull a two-horse trailer behind it, and he had saddles in the trunk of his car and saddles in his trailer, and he would come out, and he'd rope the dummy for a couple hours, you know, and again, he, he was a surgeon, but pretty good roper for somebody that was just a hobbyist. And I just thought this guy was amazing, and then he invited me to go to a couple ropings with him, and and I just kind of hung around. And then one day he said, oh, all right, Richard. I don't know. Maybe I was 13. He said, I leave my trailer parked right here. I got a couple saddles in this trailer. I keep it locked. Here's the key to this trailer. These are my four horses over here. You see these two right here? Not those two, but these two. I want you to keep them legged up for me. And it's like, are you kidding me? <laughs> now I've got these two rope horses. I've got the key to this trailer. I come out here. I'm a part. I'm I've got a job now. I can I can get on these horses and pretend like I'm Leo Camarillo, whoever I want to be that day. And so that was just huge for me to have that opportunity. And uh, and along about that time, it, there was a summer camp up in the mountains because it was hot in Fresno in the summertime. And up in the mountains, uh, they had this little horseback riding program for this summer camp and. My youth pastor at my church, uh, he'd been involved in that camp, and and he went up and introduced me to the camp manager and said, hey, this kid, he really likes horses, and maybe you could use him in the horse program. I was 14, and uh, they would hire summer staff, you know, for three months, and 
And that manager said, well, we don't hire 14 year old kids to do anything here, you know, and we already have a people running the horse program. We, we don't need them. And I, I don't know why they even gave me any more of a chance, but he hired me to go on that summer at 14. And I stayed the next four summers. Now that first summer I cleaned toilets. I worked in the kitchen. I now know what a Hobart dishwasher is because I washed dishes in the dining hall. Um, but once in a while, not very often, I got out to the horse corrals. And the fourth year I was there, I ran that horse program for them. And so that was a big deal for me uh, to be involved in a Camp Sugar Pine there uh, just below Yosemite in California. During my high school years, I went out, I got my first job working for a horse trainer that introduced me to higher levels of horsemanship. And, and again, I wasn't his assistant trainer or anything like that. I mean, I cleaned stalls, I cleaned out storage rooms, but during that time I got to get on some horses. I probably didn't have any business riding them. I mean, these horses had a feel to them and I never felt anything like that. It's, you know, it's like our grandparents, maybe they've never felt what it is to get in a car that has power steering and power brakes. But now you can even buy a car with power, without power steering and power brakes, I don't guess. But I had just been kicking to go and pulling to stop all growing up. And now in high school, I'm getting on these horses. And when you pick up on those bridle reins, those horses said, yes, sir, what can I do for you? And I'd go behind the barn and stop them and turn them around if my boss wasn't looking. <laughs> and, and we'd work cattle on them. And that was my introduction to higher levels of horsemanship. And really the first one that showed me a pathway past the mechanics of horsemanship or horseback riding to the psychology of horsemanship. So that was a great opportunity for me. I went to a horseshoeing school at that time. I went for nine months and graduated. Uh, I did it really just to get out of half my day in high school. I had some kind of vocational program. Ended up shoeing a lot of horses. When I got married, my business card said barrier on them. Shod thousands of horses, but it was a good living for a long time. Glad I'm not doing it 12 hours a day anymore. <laughs> but that was the deal, shoeing horses as a young man. And that was a great segue and and door into the local horse community. Now I was living over closer to the Central Coast in California and shoeing some horses. And then Susie's got a horse and, and the horse isn't even trained. So well, I'll take your horse for 30 days. And and so it, it allowed me to, to not only just be a farrier, but to find some opportunities to work with some horses. Uh, and so the horse training got a little bit busier. And for a lot of years, it was 50, 50. I would schedule all my horseshoeing appointments. And then uh, when I got wrapped up with them, then I'd come home and ride the four or five horses that I had in training. And then eventually I, it was kind of a, a milestone when I bought a new truck and I didn't set up the back of the truck as a farrier rig. So well, now if you bring me your horses, I'll shoe them, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to go out anymore because the training was getting busier. You're starting to do a few clinics. And so that's kind of how that deal evolved in the clinic thing. Just to elaborate a little bit more, when I was working for this horse trainer in Fresno, California, again, I started when I was 15. There was another young man in that country that was trying to train horses and he was starving to death. He was 10 years my senior. He was 25, married guy, uh, but he needed a place to train horses to lease a few stalls. The gentleman I was working for was kind of semi-retired. So he had, you know, empty stalls in this really large training stable. And so that young man came by, asked if he could lease some stalls. And so I got to know this young man and we rode together under the tutelage of this older man 
uh, for the next little while. Then that uh, then I moved away to to go to college to rodeo, and uh, this other uh, gentleman he moved away. The old man passed away, but that young man's name was Pat Pirelli, and everybody knows him now as as one of the trail blazing clinicians out there, and he built quite a little empire for himself. But we rode together before he'd ever done a clinic, you know, but he had this idea in his mind. So at the very early stages of him formulating these clinics, I would get together with him and, and, uh, and help out at those clinics and, and things like that and, and allow me to see a pathway going forward that, hey, if, if I have some horsemanship skills and just as importantly, if I have some people skills, maybe this clinic deal could work. And it was a way financially and fiscally speaking, that you could you could multiply yourself. You can be a great horse trainer, but you can only get on one at a time. But if you can get 15 horses out there in the arena at the same time and each one comes with a paycheck, and that's what a clinic was, it, it, it was kind of a pretty good little deal. And so, so the clinic deal was just great for us, as I already mentioned, for the last 35 years. And so that's kind of what we've done. And you mentioned this whole – uh, the Caro tradition, and I'm a part of what they call the National Rain Cow Horse Association. But when I was a young man and working for this gentleman in California, there was no National Rain Cow Horse Association. There was one association, and it was called the California Rain Cow Horse Association. This style of horsemanship was birthed on the West Coast. And so I count it such a privilege to be around that stuff. I'm not saying that I could do it. Uh, or even had an idea of how they did it. But I saw that there. I saw that kind of horsemanship. And I, when I went to work, work for that gentleman, I got to feel what that could feel like. And so for the next 30 years, that was my benchmark. That's where I'm headed. That That is available. And it was hard to be satisfied with anything less. And so if you talk to me for very long, you will be, it'll be easily discerned that I have a bias towards and a prejudice towards the rain cow horses. I just think that there is nothing like them not to take away from other disciplines and the good things that people are doing with horses, but they're really the triathletes of the Western performance world. And it, it has uh, deep standing traditions in the Vaquero California lifestyle that I appreciate so much. And, you know, from the snaffle bitters to the hackamore horses, to the two rain to the bridle horses, uh, that's what makes me want to go out to the barn every morning. That stuff's cool. Well, absolutely, and I had no idea that you had a Pat Pirelli connection there. So uh, I was I was about to ask you if if Ray Hunt had been a part of your journey or or what, but I I guess that sort of answers all of that. So you had, from what I understand, you spent quite a while at the Thacker School over there in California. A lot of the videos that I've seen and all are are you at that place. So would you tell us a little bit about about that? I'm honestly not real sure what your part in that was or, 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 or what, I know you still do some clinics out there. So, so uh, would you mind filling us in on that? Yes. Uh, you know, that was a great chapter in our lives. The Thatcher school in Ojai, California, it's between Santa Barbara and Los Angeles. It's been there over 140 years. It was a private boarding school, a college preparatory school for boys up until 1970 something. And then it went co-ed, uh, I could never go to that school. Uh, I mean, the academic standards are so rigorous. Uh, they would they would not let me in. I would not be successful there. The, the best and the brightest are there. It's not a boarding school for the recalcitrant 
uh, or the rebellious kid or not even if you're a jet setting parent and want to pawn your young person off and let somebody else raise them. That's not that kind of school. Uh, but it, it's one of the elite college prep schools in the country. But what made it unique was their, their, their deep uh, base and tradition in horsemanship. And Sherman Day Thatcher, I don't think that he coined the phrase, but he liked to say it. And I, of course, I never met him. He'd be 150 years old now or whatever. Uh, he said, there's nothing better for the inside of a boy than the outside of a horse. And since the beginning of the inception of the school, every young boy, and then finally girls too, had to be involved with horses their first year. And the way that that system is structured now, you come in as a freshman and you are assigned a horse and a stall and tack in seven days a week. You feed your horse every morning and every night and every day you clean his stall and five days a week you ride for two hours. And 90% of these kids come maybe never swinging a leg over a horse. They don't, they don't come as horsemen and horsewomen. But by the end of their freshman year, they are riding. And Jim Connor has been a big deal for a hundred and something years, all the speed events. And those kids fly out there come springtime. Uh, the backcountry riding and packing has been a big deal. It's boarded up against the Los Padres National Forest. On any given afternoon, there will be over 100 people that will swing their leg over a horse at the Thatcher School at the exact same time. We're all going out and riding. We go out to the Jim Connor Field. It's about a seven-acre arena. It's huge. And, uh, and we all go out there and ride because you've got – 70 freshmen that have to do it. It's their mandatory outdoor activity. You've got 20 to 25 upperclassmen who are choosing it as an elected any given semester. And then you have the faculty members uh, who are supporting that and the horsemanship instructors. So school has about 140 horses, something like that. And it's an amazing program. I had actually heard about it. I saw an article in Western Horsemen back in the 80s, and they did an expose about the Thatcher School and their horsemanship there. And then I kind of forgot about it. And then I got a letter from the headmaster of the Thatcher School. And he says, my name's Michael Mulligan. I'm the headmaster of the Thatcher School. And he began to tell me this story. His daughter, who was a junior high girl at the time, was a horse crazy kid, and she got a hold of a, a couple VHS tapes. And she said, oh, Dad, I just love this guy. we got to have this guy come to the school because the school had a long history of inviting horsemen to the school, if, if not to teach their students and instructors, perhaps just to facilitate a clinic. And even up until just a few years ago, Buck Brandman would come every year. Ray Hunt has been there. Pat Weiss has been there. Uh, Brian Newbert has been there. Long ago, a lot of your listeners wouldn't even know this guy, Monty Foreman used to come there and give horsemanship clinics. And I knew a guy in his 80s that was still a certified body foreman instructor and was also an English teacher at the school. So this letter said, listen, if you're ever in Ohio, come down. We want to take you for a tour of the Thatcher School. So we were down there for some reason, and we went. So wow, what a cool place this is. And we went back up to Northern California, this ranch that we built up there. lived on a very remote ranch up there. We were 50 miles from a gallon of milk. Uh, training horses up there and off grid, no electricity, uh, no cell service. When we first moved there, I had to drive down the road to make a phone call. But our kids were getting to high school age. And so Cheryl 
was driving our, she was driving 200 miles a day uh, to get the kids back and forth to school. And, and that just wasn't that sustainable. And so I began to have a conversation with the headmaster of the Thatcher school. Said, is there something that we could do for your school? I didn't know what that looked like. He said, Oh man, we would love to have you at this school. That'd be great. He said, but we just don't need you, man. If, if our, if the director of our horse program was retiring, you would be my guy. This would be fantastic. Oh, but we, we continued to have the conversation and we finally worked out a deal. He said, listen, come, I'm going to give you a house. I'm going to give you a barn to keep all your training horses. Your kids can apply here to go to school. They got to be able to get in, but, but they can apply. Uh, and we're going to call you our artist in residence. And we never exchanged a nickel. I was not on the payroll, uh, but we ran our business out of the Thatcher School for 10 years. Uh, they allowed us to be really a glorified house guest there. And so, yes, a lot of the videos that you see, we did our summer events there. And it was just a super cool place and a great relationship. After about 10 years, our, our son Joseph got to attend there. Unbelievable gift. I suppose Sarah could have, but she recognized no, 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 no. This takes way too much time. I, I got too much horse stuff going on. I cannot be tied down to all these uh, scholastic rigors. So she went on an independent study program. But uh, after about 10 years, I told Cheryl, I said, we better leave before they find out we're not doing anything for this school. Because uh, our business had, had gotten busy. And again, I hope it was a win-win and, and we left on great terms. And so then we, we moved up to Reno, Nevada and just continued our business. But then just the tail end of that story, now it seemed like just a blip on the radar screen. We had been gone then for quite some time. I get another call from the headmaster of the Thatcher School. He says, listen, the director of our horse program is retired. He's retiring this year. And I want you to come back and run this program. Nobody knows this program as well as you do. You were here for 10 years. And now we want you to be the director. We'll give you free reign. You run it like you want to run it. And uh, and it, it was a big deal. Uh, you know, you sit down to a, a horse faculty meeting and there's 15 people in the room. Uh, it, it, was, it, was, it was a big a big thing. And I thought, oh, wait a minute. I've never even had a job for like 30 something years. But Cheryl and I talked about it and we prayed about it. And, uh, you know, we've got 10 more years to do something with our lives. Uh, weren't planning on this, but you know what? We, we just decided to boom, let's go. I canceled a bunch of clinics I had scheduled for that following year. And I went back and, and ran that program and we were there for two years. And what I found out, I was terrible at it. I, I was a terrible horse director for the Thatcher school. I Hopefully I added some value for the time that I was there. It's somebody's dream job. I mean, over the top. And they were so gracious to me as I just burned through their money, <laughs> buying horses and making improvements to their, their place and things. Uh, but now they've got somebody there that is so well suited. Uh, we said, boom, we're going to Texas, came down here. Then all of a sudden, uh, it's like, wow, Sarah's having a baby. Had no idea that was on anybody's radar. And so Cheryl was right here poised to take on that responsibility. And so... That was our affiliation with the Thatcher School and uh, and made a lot of great friends, have a lot of great memories there. Uh, so, yeah, it was a fun chapter in our lives. But I was a terrible director. <laughs>
I can understand that. It, it's that's probably more of an administrative type of a job, and your uh, skill on the end of a lead rope doesn't necessarily dictate how well you're going to handle that. So, uh, I get it. Well, look, I don't want to leave your son out. So, why don't you tell us a little bit about what your son is doing these days as well? Well, you bet. Uh, you know, everybody in the horse industry knows uh, Sarah Dawson, formerly Sarah Winters, and she has made quite a name for herself. And, uh, of course, uh, she followed in her daddy's footsteps and at some point got as good as I was and then just kept on going. And and I will never achieve, I think in all reality, I'll never achieve the, the height of horsemanship and the skill level that she now has at 33 years of age. But she has a brother who is 15 months older than her, and I am more proud of him than I am of her. Well, that's not true. I'm equally proud of both of them. But he is my own personal superhero. Uh, Joseph Winters, he's a big physical fitness guy. And, and let this be an encouragement to perhaps parents that have kids in high school or even out and really haven't, the kids haven't found their way. And, oh, my goodness, Lord forbid, maybe they're still living in your basement, you know, eating out of your refrigerator. So once you go find yourself somewhere else, you know, or whatever. But Joseph graduated the Thatcher School. He went off to an Ivy League school because – really, because that's what the other kids were doing. He didn't know what he wanted to do. And because he didn't know what he wanted to do, I would mention a couple times, maybe half selfishly, but I think it was good advice. You ever think about the military, Joe? Uh, you know, it'll give you some time to kind of figure out what you want to do, and then they'll pay for your education later on. And I remember about the third time I mentioned that, he looked me right in the eye and he said, Dad, don't ever say that again. Don't ever tell me that again. You know, what are you going to do? You, you recognize the older your kids get, you're, you're just as concerned about them. You love them just as much, but you, you just have less and less power every day and, uh, and helping them make decisions or anything. So, okay, I back off. And he came back from that Ivy League school. He just went for a short time. And then he was actually back with us at the Thatcher School, and he was helping coach football and working in the maintenance department. And he was having a conversation with one of the teachers there who was a big military guy in his previous career. And Joseph had fallen in love with surfing, really loved to surf, and uh, was never an avid swimmer necessarily, but, but he enjoyed the whole beach vibe thing. He, he was into that. So this teacher said, hey, Joe, you ever think about the Coast Guard? They got some cool deals there. And they got this program at it's like equivalent to the Navy SEALs. It's a rescue swimmer program. And uh, in fact, it has a higher attrition rate than the Navy SEALs. And I don't know if you could ever get into that program, but, but if you don't join the Coast Guard, I know you're not getting in. And anyway, Joe comes back to me and he says, I'm going to get an appointment to go down to talk to the Coast Guard recruiter next week. And I just play it really cool. Oh, that's interesting, Joe. Let me know how it goes. On the inside, I'm saying, yes. Yes, get your butt down there. So he goes down, gets in the Coast Guard, this idea of maybe becoming one of their elite rescue swimmers. But uh, he goes through basic training, then they put you on a Coast Guard cutter, and you pay your dues for two years, you know, counting fishermen's fish or interdicting illegal aliens off the coast somewhere, and saving Haitians and 87 of them in a, in a six-man boat or whatever. Uh, and then he applies for rescue swimmer school and goes through all the rigors of that. And I remember thinking, oh, he's got in that school. It's really hard to even get in the rescue swimmer school. And, hey, Joe, tell us when the graduation is because we want to go to your graduation. He said, Dad, 
I'm probably not even going to graduate from this thing. You don't be buying any plane tickets or anything. <laughs> it's a rotational class, and there were 13 guys and maybe and, and gals too that were in his rotational class as the rescue swimmer. And when it came time for graduation, 13 guys were in. Now, to get in the rescue swimmer school, you've got to go spend six weeks or eight weeks at a swim station and you work out and hang with those guys and do their grunt work and they assess you and they recommend you or don't recommend you to rescue swimmer school because they don't want to send guys up to the school that don't have a chance. So there's already been a weeding out process just to get to the school. So him and 12 other guys go to that school. We went to his graduation and there were three guys on the platform, 10 guys washed out. But he has he has found his calling. He said, Dad, I'm living the dream. He's got a tattoo on his arm, says uh, 387. I believe he's the 387th swimmer to ever come out of the Coast Guard. It's a, a relatively new program, and only a few guys do it. <laughs> and underneath that number, it says, so others may live. And I, I read that, I think, what would I put on my arm? Uh, I ride horses. It just doesn't sound as noble. Uh, but again, he's a big physical fitness guy. He looks like Superman. Uh, he married this supermodel who loves to work out. And if you got, if you, if you know somebody that has maybe an addiction or an obsessive behavior, they get a little cranky if they can't do their thing. If he doesn't get to go work out, he gets a little cranky. He starts going through withdrawals and he's got to get his workout every day. But him and his wife are huge outdoor enthusiasts, love to fish, love to hunt, love to surf. And they just started a brand new chapter in their lives. He's made chief and they, he was leaving Corpus Christi, Texas and for a new assignment. And he put down the, his three top choices, which they get to do. They said, oh, okay, that's interesting winners. You're not going to any of these. You're going to Sitka, Alaska. And oh. so last month they moved up to Sitka, Alaska, because if you're in the rank of file of rescue swimmers, there's more places you can go. But if you're a chief, well, there's only a few places we need a chief and you're going to Sitka. And they were a little unsure about, you know, going up to going up there. And but they are having a big time now. He sent he, he bought an Alaska boat before he ever got there. And he's catching these crazy fish. And he got some crab pots the other day and threw them out. And he uh, hauled in these Dungeness crab. And and yeah, they're they're loving it. And so needless to say, Cheryl and I are planning a trip this next spring to sit Alaska. Uh, so, yes, we're very proud of Joseph and his wife, Lauren. She is a nurse practitioner, and her training is taking care of the critically ill babies in the, the NICU unit. So uh, that's what she's done. So I guess they both save lives. So that's Joseph Winters. We got two kids, and, and our kids followed the stereotype. Little girl grew up loving horses. Boy, didn't care anything about it. Uh, that's normally how it goes. You know, I know that you train horses and do clinics, and, and chances are when you look out over your audience – or participants that have signed up, if it's anything like mine, it's about 80% women. Yes, sir. You know, absolutely. which is all right. Yeah. I just tell those husbands, get back to work. Keep, keep paying for these horses. I did want to talk with you a little bit about your farrier career. And I don't know how divorced from that you are at this point, or if you're still shoeing your own or, or anything, do you, you still crawl under a horse on occasion? You know, that's interesting. And, uh, and I would have a different answer about two months ago, but I'll give you this answer now. 
quite a few years ago, I quit shoeing horses for the public. And, and then I didn't even let people bring their horses over to shoe. But I had horses in training, and I did all the horses I had in training. I did my own horses and every horse I had in training. Whether they needed trim, they needed shaw, they needed sliders behind, whatever. I just did it all. And so all my equipment's right there in my storage room, and I just did them when they needed doing. Done that right up until our time here in Texas. And then just a few months ago, for whatever reason, I went from about eight horses to about 16 horses. And I'm thinking, oh, man. And then interestingly enough, a young, a very sweet young couple moved in next door. And they came over and introduced themselves. And this young man was a farrier and not just some little backyard farrier. I mean, he's he's a, he's a player. You know, he's got his got a trailer set up really nice. And and I had him come over and do one. And uh, you know what? I'm just going to let this guy do these things. And so for the last two rounds, he has done all the horses here. And I have not climbed underneath one. I think the last thing I did was at the horse show in Louisiana, when my horse uh, ran down there and stopped and overreached and jerked off a shoe and a pad, after the run, I got off and picked up that shoe and went back to the stalls and got my shoe box out and nailed that shoe back on. So if things slow down a little bit and I have just a handful of horses, would I do them again? Yeah, maybe so. Because I've always... I think it's been good for me physically and, and maybe my vanity too. I've taken a little pride in the fact that I still climbed under my share of them, but now I, it's just all I can do to get them rode every day. And so that's what's going on with the horseshoeing deal. Oh, cool. but I can't imagine Daniel, you know, I, I went to that shoeing school, uh, what 40 something years ago. I did it because they said, Hey, you could go to this vocational school and you get out of high school at 1130 in the morning and they'll waive your PE class for travel time. And you can go to the shoeing school. I said, well, that's great because this school, this high school is just getting in the way of my education anyway. And so for selfish reasons, I went to the shoeing school, never thinking, never dreaming that it would become, you know, such a viable part of, of who we were and, and what we did for a living. Uh, so after graduating there, it it was just a natural thing to begin to shoe some horses to make a couple dollars here and there. And, uh, and then had a little business built. And my, my wife, she would smile if she was here. I don't think I'm talking out of turn. I did not marry a horse girl. Somebody said, well, does she like horses? I said, well, I don't know. She seems to like horseshoers. All right. But she would say that the horses intimidate her a little bit and she didn't want to get dirty, you know, and she's happy to not get too cold or not get too hot. And so she's ran our business and, and I tell people that you know, there's a few things that I can do that she doesn't want to do. There's a whole list of things that she can do that I don't know how to do. And so that's why we make such a good team. 90% of any of those videos of mine that you've ever watched or all the social media, my wife does all that, all the filming, all the editing. She's the one that makes us look so professional. But when we got married and I was shooing some horses, she naively said, well, what are we going to do once you've, shod all the horses in our area will we then have to go to another area will we have to move and go somewhere else she didn't even know that you got to do them again i i said it's like your hairdresser baby you just keep coming back six weeks later they're going to call me again i'm going to do them again she's are you kidding what a racket <laughs> <laughs> absolutely it's not even fair is it <laughs> so that's the deal there well let's 
I don't. I, so I do some farrier work myself. I don't. I don't shoot for the public, but I've been doing my own for probably twelve or fifteen years now, something like that. And uh, you don't know me, but I have a, a cutting horse background. I, I used to be a two-year-old futurity guy, and one of the things that that has always mystified me a little bit is when I watch some of the reigning events and all, when they get to the rollbacks, I've always found them to be anticlimactic. Like, like I'm used to the cutting horses that can just park it and turn directions and the reining horses just never, you know, it was sort of lackluster. Even the eight-year-old open horses, I'm thinking I got two-year-olds that would do a better rollback than, than that thing was. And I have always wondered how much of a part of that the sliders play where they just don't have the same amount of traction on the hind end to hold the ground. And of course our cutting horses were wanting them to do everything off of the outside hind leg and the rainers for the spin, they're, they're doing everything around the inside hind leg. Uh, and like you even have a couple of the, the big boys in the reining world that are well known for departing off of the rollback into the incorrect lead. And then they have to do a lead change before their quarter circle. So they don't get, doctor or anything so as someone who isn't necessarily a rainer but rain cow horse you have a part of that pattern in there do you feel like the sliding plates and all play a, a part in that or, or are you just looking at me like i'm i'm crazy and the rollbacks are wonderful or or what are your what are your thoughts there well if if you ask somebody else they might have a different spin on this uh but you know there's three major western performance horse disciplines there's the cutters there's the rainers and there's the rain cow horses. The rain cow horses are really the, the triathletes of the industry that they, they've got to know how to cut. They got to know how to rain. And they do this unique event called going down the fence. Cutting horse does something very specific. They hold that cow. It is unbelievable what they do, but it is very specialized and they might not know how to change leads to save their life. And if you pull on the bridle reins, they might throw their head in the air. Who knows? But what they do, they do it super cool. A reigning horse goes out and does that pattern unbelievable. The way they slide, the way they turn around, the precision of those circles, phenomenal. But they wouldn't know a cow from a giraffe. Have no, no concept. And so here's the deal to get specific to your question. In every, if you open the rule book for uh, the reigners, in the back would have all the raining patterns and they all call for a rollback in the rain cow horse event. You look at, we have 12 or 15 patterns. There's not one pattern that calls for a rollback. And this is why I believe that is the rainers included their rollback originally with the idea. We want to show the judge that if we were out here working a cow and we had to stop with the cow and roll back and go get that cow, we could do that. Now, you and I already know doing it, what we, what we see those world-class horses do, that, that it, you're, you're going to hit that cow right on the butt and just go on a cattle drive all the way back to the other end of the ring. That's what's going to happen. You are not going to hold that cow. Uh, but, but it has become a thing unto itself anymore that was its original intent to demonstrate how it could roll back and hold a cow we don't have a rollback in our rule book because as soon as we get done with this raining pattern we're going to call for a cow and we're going to show you how we stop and turn with a cow and and that's why that is not in there 
we tend to, as humans, take everything and just stretch it to the limit. And if you want to put a negative spin on it, we, we can just pervert things and distort things. And, you know, you get rewarded for something and, and people see that and say, well, if he got rewarded for that, I can do it plus a little bit. And pretty soon we're, we're doing something more and more and more. And yes, the way those rollbacks are designed now, those horses are going to run down there and they are going to drag their butt. They're all wearing one inch plus sliders. Ground's prepared, especially for these rangers. It's different ground than we would cut in. It's different ground than even a cow horse would go in. And so they're going to slide and they're going to do this rollback that I think the original intent was to show what it would be like with a cow, but anymore, it's got nothing to do with that. And so it, it's just distinctly them. And so there's no reason for me to criticize it. It's just, it's, it's their party. It's their game. And people that are kind of uninformed, they'll, they'll interchange all this terminology and, you know, and Oh, Richard, you're kind of into the reigning thing. And, you know, if you started mentioning a bunch of names in the rain and I wouldn't for maybe just the half a dozen guys on top, I probably wouldn't even know me. The bloodlines of the reigning horses, it's become a whole thing unto itself where, because again, it's gotten so discipline specific to where there's, there's no, not, not much crossover anymore. Uh, and, and in the cutting, you know, those guys that do what they do and they're, they're multi-million dollar riders, but they don't rain and they don't do the cow horse thing. 98% of them don't. I mean, there's a few guys that, that will cross over and do the other. So it's just, it's just different. But that's why I really love the cow horses because they are such a versatile, a versatile trained horse to be able to go out and do it all. And I tell people that you might have no desire to ever go compete in anything on a horse. And you might not ever want to go do anything fast in an arena, but I'm just thinking if I gave you a rain cow horse, you would like that horse because you can put that horse anywhere you need him to be. He moves his body parts where you want him. He's got power steering. He's got power brakes. He knows how to go fast. And then he knows how to slow down. Every horse knows how to go fast. But when we ask a lot of horses to go fast, it's 15 minutes before we can get their mind back down to that slow gear again. But these Cow horses have learned to handle that handle that mental pressure to turn it on and turn it off again, and uh, I I liken it unto as people are just trying to get their head around it. If you're familiar with eventing, three day eventing in the English world, that's a discipline where horses go and do the dressage, and they do the stadium jumping, and they do the cross country. They have three things to do, and if you take a world class three day eventer, he probably could not. Although he does the dressage and does it very well, if he had to compete against a straight-up dressage horse, he wouldn't even place. Because that dressage horse, that's all that horse has done. Just very specific. So we go out and we do our reining pattern, and the good ones do it. Do it great. But if we had to go show against rainers, no. No, we, 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 couldn't, we couldn't do what they do. And our horse is cut. But if we had to go show against a world-class cutting horse – we can, you know, we can pick up our hand a little bit here and there, but our good ones, by the time they're bridle horses, you watch these good riders keep their hands down more and more. But we couldn't really compete, you know, against those uh, those great cutters. Uh, but again, they're the triathletes. They do all three things. 
and they do it pretty doggone good. So I'm giving you some long answers today. No, but, uh, but you're the one that said we're going to go a while. So there you go. Yes, sir. I, I did want to bring it back to the shoes a little bit. So like you had said, in raining, and for those that don't know, usually you're going to start a raining horse out in baby sliders. So they're going to be like three quarter inch wide plates, and then you move them up to seven and eighths, and then one inch and maybe even one and a quarter, just depending on how you're setting the horse up. So, so when they start sliding, they don't necessarily slide 30 feet. They, they might slide 12 and then you're giving them more and more flotation and in the rain cow horse, y'all do have a, a slide in there, but you also have to go actually stop a cow. And this is one of those things I tell people that a stop and a slide are not the same maneuver at all. <laughs> you know, we, we don't measure stops in 30 feet distances, hopefully. So how do y'all handle that with the horses? I, like I've heard of some trainers that are actually changing shoes throughout the course of the show. Uh, we're going to have this set of shoes on when we work cow and then, then we're going to change to this, or maybe they tap them and put one plate on top of another plate. And so as a farrier, who's also doing rain cow horse, how do you view that part? Is it sort of like a, a, a NASCAR where we might put different tires on for a different track or, or what, what have we got there? Yeah. We kind of have to split the difference a little bit. So 90% of these cow horses are going to have on a sliding plate. Rarely would you find one an inch wide. They're going to be three quarters. They're going to be seven eighths maybe. When we go to cut on them, if most of us who are serious about getting it done, we, we've have, we have those uh, hind shoes drilled and we'll put studs in them when we go to cut because as you know, with your cutting horse background, you can't have them sliding past the cow. They, they got to get in that ground and they change up the ground. They'll, they'll, they'll bring ground in to that arena for the cutting part of the competition, make that ground deeper. So those horses can get in and, and stay in the ground going down the fence is where it gets a little tricky. You know, now you can't keep the studs in them then cause you'll, you'll just snap their legs off, you know, and they are flying down that fence at 30 miles an hour and have to stop and turn with that cow. There's gotta be some give there. But, but you, they can't slide past the cow, two cow lengths or whatever. That's not going to work either. I remember one time, and this is just a sidebar here, if your listeners are interested to see something cool, just Google Sarah Dawson and Shiny Outlaw. There's a horse that she showed for a period of time, famous stallion, and she broke the world record at the AQHA World Show, uh, highest points ever to, to be scored. And when she won the uh, the world championship on that horse, so pretty fun to watch. And there's a judge's commentary on there and uh, pretty neat. But we were at a horse show one time and dad, you have your shoe in box here? Yeah. Hey, could you just jerk the shoes off of uh, shiny? We're going to go down the fence. And they felt for that horse, just, just take his shoes off and we'll nail them back on. And so they let him go down the fence barefoot because they didn't want him sliding way past the cow it gets a little problematic within the course of an event to be switching out shoes. As you know, you, you know, you're pulling the, lifting the clenches up and taking shoes off and, and putting them and putting a different shoe back on. So I don't know anybody that's really doing that, but for the cutting, putting those studs in have compromised with the sliding plate to not make this great big ski that they're on, but they sure enough want them, you know, to be able to slide along the ground too. So, we're splitting the difference there. That's fair enough. Yes, sir. So a good friend of mine and a guest here just a few episodes back told me that I needed to 
be sure and ask you how riding a horse is different from riding a camel. And I don't know if you automatically <laughs> know who that is or not, but uh, <laughs> that was Patrick King. That's <laughs> yes, Patrick King, a good guy. I look forward to our paths crossing again at some point in the future. Uh, in fact, I wrote an article uh, about my experience with Patrick and that camel uh, later on because it was very interesting to me what happened there. Patrick King is, is a great horseman from when I knew him. He was in Pennsylvania. Maybe he's still there. Uh, but he had been contracted to go to this kind of, I guess it was a zoo, kind uh, of more of an interactive, more than a petting zoo, but but he was working with the animals and they, I think they asked him to train this camel to lead and then to ride. And so he said, come with me to the zoo. I'll show you all the stuff I'm doing. And, uh, and he wanted to get out the camel. And I went for a ride on this camel, you know, uh, which, which was crazy. Uh, Cause he teach the camel kneels down, you get on him and then the camel gets up. It was, it was weird because when he got up, I mean, I am twice as high as what I'm used to being on a horse. When you're up on the top of that hump, you are way up there. So that automatically felt a little bit funny. But he gave me my first camel ride. But, but the, what I wrote the article about was he went in, caught the camel, had a halter and a lead rope on him. And he's getting the gate. And he said, here, hold the camel while I get the gate. And so I'm holding the lead rope on this camel. You know, they got these necks that are about seven or eight feet long and this camel just kind of takes his old head makes his big old swoops seem like a like a venomous cobra to me the way he moved around and i jump back i might even let go of the leader you know uh the well, sucker's gonna knock me in the head uh and it really took me back and then i then i gave my composure again and got the camel but i thought about that and i thought you know, it as awkward as that felt for me, I want it gave me a little empathy for the average person that maybe is a little intimidated by the horse that's being a little pushy or a little rude or a little demonstrative demonstrative on the end of a lead rope, and the people are, are backing away and trying to stay out of trouble and not get hurt. And we're trying to say, Hey, step up there and move that sucker back and and uh, and, and take control of that animal. But I thought, well, Richard, you just remember how you were with that camel. And maybe you can have a little more empathy for these people that don't have quite as much experience as you do dealing with these horses. But yeah, that's my camel story. <laughs> well, that's a pretty good one. And, and if you know Patrick, you're liable to come across some interesting stories just by knowing him. He's one of those people. So I think it is time for us to do our sponsor for this episode. And we found a unique one for you. Um, so are you suddenly feeling like your resource isn't special or exotic enough anymore? Are you excited by GMO technologies and playing God with DNA? Designer Horse Labs of Beverly Hills, located right off of Rodeo Drive, has expanded our offerings of designer dog breeds to now include horses. The Brahma Bell Mule. Through an odd and unforeseen series of events, the first designer breed was a complete accident. We had a Belgium Jenny that wound up getting turned in with a herd of registered Brahmin cattle. And it turns out that mules can actually cross with Brahmin cattle. And the long lop-eared offspring with a hump will have you thinking you've stepped into a Star Wars set. No parade or private zoo is complete without this hybrid classic. 
Uh, small warning, though, if you think your teenager is stubborn, you ain't seen nothing yet. The Shetcheron. Have you ever wanted the beauty and heft of a Percheron, but in a more compact size? We've crossed them with those wonderful mining ponies, the Shetland. And with DNA technology, we've added in a scotia of Amazonian frog species. You're going to try one and you won't believe how springy they are. The free quarters. Everyone wants a Frisian. Just imagine yourself cantering out across a meadow, wearing a black cloak like a ring wraith. By crossing them with the most popular horse breed in the world, we've gotten rid of tons of unfortunate skin conditions and giving them 25% more sense. Don't worry, though, that in-your-face head carriage remains or your money back. Also available in a bald-faced version with two blue eyes that aren't deaf but are unfortunately gluten intolerant. We have been introducing some bat DNA into the mix and expect to have flying prototypes within the year, except they keep having respiratory problems. The Gypsalusa. Have you ever looked at the Gypsy Vanners and thought, man, if only it were even more colorful? Have we got the perfect cross for you? Gypsalusas are just what the medicine man ordered. These guys have feathers on their legs and in their manes, and in an odd twist of fate, also come out with a unicorn horn that we certainly weren't expecting. But wait, there's more. Have you seen those glow-in-the-dark fish at the pet store? Well, you won't believe your eyes when you see these guys under a blacklight. The Curly Clydesdale, made up of a proprietary blend of Clydesdale and Bashkir curly breeds. These guys are the tallest thing on the planet that you'd describe as cute. Through careful breeding, we've even got the stallions of this cross growing handlebar mustaches. The only thing that could make these guys more fun to brush would be even more hair. That's why we've introduced a small amount of yak DNA in there. This is the first breed of horse that requires you to have a mobile grooming salon to own. Designer Horse Labs of Beverly Hills. We're always working on new and exciting designer crosses because as we get nearer and nearer to the final apocalypse, you might as well go out riding something really, really cool. All right. Well, we've paid the bills now, so I feel a little bit better. Thank you for sitting through our, our sponsor there. I think the whole reason I started this podcast was just to get the right silly commercials. <laughs> well, you were uh, quite the wordsmith. Well, thank you. Thank you. So, um, you have spent decades now giving lessons and dealing with the public. And, and I, I do say when I got into the horse business, one of the reasons I got into it was because I didn't think I would have to deal with people very much. And uh, 30 years later, you realize this is actually a people business, not a horse business. So when it comes to relating to customers, what is your favorite way to go about that? Do you like the, the clinic thing or do you do more one-on-one -on -one type stuff anymore or the expos? What, what's sort of your favorite medium, so to speak, of dealing with the public? Well, you, you stole my thunder a little bit. Yes, I tell young people that come to work for me, you know, you think you want to get in the horse business and, and you want to be a horse trainer, or clinician or whatever. You know, if you don't get your head around the idea that you're not really in the horse business, you're in the people business. You know, horses don't write checks. It's people that write checks. And if, and if you are not getting along with the people, if you don't build uh, some, some people skills, you are not going to make it in this deal. Uh, I did a 
kind of an internship thing many years ago and had young people come and ride with me. And part of their homework assignment, their reading material was they had to read Dale Carnegie, Dale Carnegie's book, how to win friends and influence people. You know, the stories are maybe uh, somewhat uh, antiquated and, and seem outdated, but the principles ring just as true today as when he wrote that book, uh, my goodness, probably almost a hundred years ago. Um, understanding how people think, what motivates them, how to get along with them. So that that's a huge deal right there. You know, I mentioned earlier that we did our first clinic, you know, 35 years ago. I can remember that because Joseph is 35 and he was just a baby. He had just been born when I taught that first clinic in Salinas, California. And, you know, there were clinics going on. You know, John Lyon was out there doing clinics. Ray Hunt had been out there doing clinics. Uh, you know, his mentor, Tom Dorrance, was out there. And then new guys were coming on the scene like Pat Pirelli and, and different ones. Uh, but when I did my very first clinic, I could name like the half a dozen people that were out there who were players in this thing. And now, I mean, there's hundreds of them. And, and they're good. A lot of them are really, really good. And, and there's a clinic – you know, in every town, every weekend, if you want to go to them, I would not. This is what, what I think. I would not want to have to start this deal now. I think I got in at a really good time. Uh, I mean, I, I just got back from doing a clinic up in Idaho. I'm going to Ohio here a couple of weeks and go do another one. And so they're they're still out there. They're still a thing, but but they've been around for a while. And people have been to the clinics now. And, so I'm thankful that I got in when I did. But that was a great opportunity because it allowed you to be around a lot of people at one time, as I mentioned earlier, you know, financially, it, it was a good thing. And and I would tell people, say, you know what, it just goes to show you how unfair life is. You have come to this clinic and you paid good money to be here. I've come to the clinic. I'm getting paid to be here, but I'm going to learn more than you because they're going to be so wrapped up and absorbed in their horse. I got like 15 horses here that I'm going to learn from. And so it, it just allowed me to, to learn so much in this business and meet so many great people. Uh, we've done the one-on-one -on -one lessons, and I had a couple gals come here just this morning. I here, rode from 5 a.m. to 8 a.m., brought to four two-year-olds with them and just helped them. And, and I do a little bit of that as well. Um, and then we have some non-pros. Uh, we call them non-pros. They have horses here in training, and they show in the – non-open the non-professional classes that are horse shows and so i'm their coach as it were keep their horse going and, and coach them in that and i i enjoy doing that because i enjoy the discipline and i like helping them get better and it, it keeps me involved in the industry that way uh so i have enjoyed working with people i suppose there's some days oh, i wish i could just just monkey with the horses and not have the people be a part of it uh, an anecdotal story years ago, I went up to a ranch, uh, got invited to do a branding and I was training horses down in the valley. And one guy that was there working on the ranch. He, I got to visit him with him. He's all oh, your horse trainer. And, uh, and he was, you know, just working on this ranch. And yeah, he said, you know, I used to train horses for the public. And I, I liked, I like training horses, but I just couldn't handle the people. I just couldn't handle the people. And so there he was back on the ranch, 1500 bucks a month, you know, instead of 1500 a horse, and uh and and place to live and food to eat because he he just just couldn't handle the people but 
the people that I deal with, Daniel, and this is what helps keep me centered a little bit, the vast majority of them, they're, they're not stupid people. And so, so their questions aren't stupid. The things that might be natural or second nature for you or me to do might be awkward for them. They don't have the privilege of doing this every day. You know, they got some job they got to do, but they have put themselves out there. They put themselves in a situation where maybe they're going to look and or feel a little bit stupid and not get it right. And they could be a brain surgeon. They could be a NASCAR driver. They, they could be, you know, extremely proficient in their particular field, but they have elected to put themselves in this vulnerable situation and shame on me for ever being a little bit impatient or ever being a little short with them, uh, that they're willing to come out there. And, and really, I tell people, and this is not just hyperbole, I said, I don't know what you think about me. You've come out here today to, to learn from me, but I am really a lot more like you than I am unlike you. I'm just some little kid that grew up loving horses, and I just wanted to figure them out. And I bet most of you were kids that grew up loving horses and, and wanted to be involved and wanted to figure it out. But, you know, our lives have all taken different turns and and you found a profession and you had family obligations. And now you've only got so many units of life and so many hours a week that you can devote to your horses. I get to do this every day. And so I just try to remind myself of that. And they only dream of getting to do what I get to do. So I want to be patient with these folks. And and they're just trying to learn like I'm just trying to learn. They don't have more questions than I have. I got just as many questions. There are different questions, but I got just as many horse training questions, just as many horse psychology questions as they have. But, you know, maybe it's just on a, on a different level, but we're all still on this journey trying to head towards this place of horsemanship. Uh, we're all kind of horseback riders. That's just the art of not falling off, but, but we're desiring to be horsemen and horsewomen. And I think that's more of an elite club to be part of the horsemanship club. Anybody can be part of the horseback riding club. You know, you can do that. They have therapeutic riding programs for handicapped people and, and anybody can do that. But if you want to be a horseman, you got to make an investment, not just a financial investment, but blood, sweat, and tears and your emotions and, and uh, your time. It's a lifetime to become a horseman. So that sort of brings up a thought for me that I have found I have actually learned significantly more since I've become a clinician and it's almost like a a grad student that has to defend their thesis in front of the board of professors, knowing how to do something with a horse and then being able to articulate that and defend it and explain it and break it down. And sometimes you realize there's an inconsistency in what you're saying here. And so am I really doing what I think I'm doing or have I just been telling myself that all this time? And, and when you've done a decade of that, you, you really sort things out and organize them way, way better than you ever would have if you didn't have to teach it. So have you found that to be true in your world as well? Yes, I, I, I think, Daniel, that is very true. Because I've often said, and my wife, I'll be getting heading to the airport to get on the airplane, go do some clinics. She's like, she give me a kiss goodbye. Babe, don't don't get on the people's horses. Don't get on their horses. Horses are crazy. Don't get on their horses. Well, I get to the clinic, and Susie Q's having some trouble with her horse. Can't get it to pick up the left lead or 
whatever. He won't go forward or whatever. And I said, here, Susie, let me get on your horse for just a few minutes here. Let me give you the picture in your mind's eye of what I might do. Because in all reality, Daniel, it's easier for me to get on her horse and get a little something going than it would be for me to sit here on the edge of this golf cart or stand in the middle of this arena and coach her through it to have, to be able to give her jobs to do that she can handle, you know, and be able to express these ideas in a way that she can understand. And I'll just do a little name dropping here. You know, you mentioned, you know, who maybe I was around. I talked about, you know, the time I spent with Pat Pirelli, it was a great time, but I had the privilege of riding with Ray Hunt and then his mentor, Tom Dorrance and Tom's brother, Bill, think any more people think these guys are were they real people or were they just like legends like was tommy appleseed or johnny appleseed a real person or, or not you know well they were real guys and but i never saw tom dorrance on a horse well i saw pictures but i was around him a lot of different times at different clinics but i've never i never saw him swing a leg over a horse you know he was in his 80s i guess at that time and was not riding and he would sit there on a little stool and he would coach people all day long from experienced full-time trainers to just Joe six pack with his horse and Susie Q with Tony, the pony. And I thought, man, I've, when I go to a clinic, I have the luxury of doing it the lazy way. Just go get on that horse. But he had to sit there and, and somehow get tools in their hands to be able to accomplish that. And, and that's a task. And, and so I've had to work at that because Although I do still climb on the people's horses, I do have to to give them a pathway to go forward to make some progress. You know, they don't have to do it exactly like me or or have the same outcome as me, but I need to I need to give them some direction that they feel like, okay, this was worthwhile. I can I can implement this thing. And so you have to be able to articulate it. And the thing that I might ask you to do would be different than what I might ask Joe over here to do, because you guys have two different skill sets. And if you are entrusting me during this time and you're going to do what I tell you to do, am I going to put you in an unsafe predicament? Just kick him, you know, over and under that sucker. You know, well, I got to be careful what I tell them to do because they just might do it. And, uh, and so we got to keep people safe. So yes, I've spent the last almost, you know, four decades honing my communication skills and really trying to help people see clearly where they are without making them feel stupid. I mean, why make them cry at the clinic? You know, what, what's that about? Why, why be little people? You know, they already know they got problems. If they didn't have any problems, they wouldn't come to the clinic. You know, why do they need to, me to tell them in any kind of way that, that uh, they're doing a terrible job? Uh, so, you know what? You, you got that horse in the trailer. You got him here. You saddled him up and you're on him. There's some good things that have happened today because some of you wouldn't even know how to do that. And so you're, you're ahead of the game. All right. Now, now let's just see if we can make a little more progress. How would you define horsemanship? I alluded to it a little bit ago. I define it as I delineate it and separate it as another level from horseback riding. Horseback riding, just the art of not falling off, kick to go and pull to stop. And in fact, if you don't have, if you are not a certified card carrying horseback rider, you cannot come to me. I don't, I don't think you could pay me enough money 
to come and take lessons from me. You got to be a horseback rider uh, to come because I give horsemanship lessons. I teach horsemanship clinics. I don't give horseback riding lessons. You got to you got to have that going for you. You got to know how to get on them and, and survive the experience and turn left and turn right and, and have some sense of balance and you know that you could kind of walk, trot, and lope them around. Horsemanship. Well, got a lot of time here, don't we? So here's the deal. Say I was going to give you horseback riding lessons. This this is a funky scale, and you can buy into it or not. You know, you could rate yourself right now, Daniel. Oh, Daniel, what are you on, on the horsemanship scale on a scale of one to ten? And what are you, Richard? And what are you, Joe? And, and so, well, I'm I'm just a four, or I'm a six, or I'm an eight, or or whatever. Well, I heard somebody use a scale like this. One through six, you're gonna you're gonna learn skills, and you're gonna go one, two, three, four, five, six, and boom. There, there's your horseback riding card. Congratulations, you're doing a good job. You are a bona fide horseback rider. You are solid, uh, but maybe you're not satisfied with that. And maybe you took up riding, maybe you've been riding since a little kid, or maybe you took it up midstream, or maybe you had to take a 20 year hiatus, whatever the deal was, but you're a rider, but now you want to begin to hone your horsemanship skills. Well, you just took these steps, one, two, three, four, five, six, but I wanna be a seven, I wanna be an eight. Okay, well, here we go. We're going to go from six to eight, six and one-tenth, six and two-tenths, six and three-tenths. It's going to take you longer to get from six to seven than it took to get you from one to six. Because the farther you go, now it's the little things that make the big difference. I tell people when they come here, you know what? You got all the big things. I'm not going to give you any big thing. You got all those big things before you got here. But now I'm just going to give you little things. So now you're a solid eight. You're making a living teaching people this stuff. You got a DVD out. You're going and presenting at a horse expo. You are a solid eight. But when you lay your head on your pillow at night, you know there's still more. Because you could call out the names out loud of people that do whatever better than you. They are getting greater results than you. They are communicating more effectively with their horses. Uh, you know, maybe at the last clinic, they thought you were the cat's meow, but you know there's so much more to attain to. So you start investing in yourself more and more. And now it's eight and one one hundreds, eight and two one hundreds, eight and three one hundreds. See how the farther you go, there's farther to go in this deal. And it goes back to what it says on the side of my trailer. Enjoy the journey. I didn't, I didn't even know that there were these places to go years ago because I wasn't far enough in my journey to see what that next vista was, to see what that next plateau would be. And, and then a, just a different spin on that. I think that there are people who are making their living, forget my scale now, but, but they call themselves horse trainers, but they're a little bit mechanical about it. They get stuff done, you know, they get them trained and get them broke. But I think horsemanship really delves into the psychology of horses and there's a mechanical aspect to it. You got to know, Hey, pick up that rein and draw it to your belly button and there, put your spur farther by, back by the back, back sense. There's, there's physical things you need to know, but the psychological aspect of it. And, and that's what was introduced to me just as a teenage boy, when I went to work for that horseman uh, and, and allowed me to, to recognize that, okay, yeah, there are some mechanical things you need to learn, but it's only about 10% of what we do. 90% is the psychology of it. 
And when you begin to talk with some of these great, great trainers slash horsemen, uh, maybe they are out there competing and doing great things. And you begin to listen to how they get into those horses' minds and how they adapt their program for this horse. Because there are a few trainers that maybe can get some horses on top, but they go through a lot of horses to get those few horses because all the horses that come into their barn have to fit their mold. If they don't fit that training style, that trainer's call them, hey, this horse ain't going to work. This horse doesn't have what it takes. Well, they might have had that trainer been flexible enough to adjust his program to change the psychology a little bit to fit that horse. But, you know, he, he just has his limitations or her limitations. He's going to do it just this way. So that that's my answer for what I think horsemanship is. It's a study of the horse. And, you know, Pat, he's the king of hyperbole and comes up with all these little sayings. And he would define it. The horse and the man in a ship or a vessel, those two together in one vessel, where it's not a horse and this man over here, but this person, this horse are becoming one, traveling as one vessel. That's how he defined horsemanship. Not a bad definition. You're stimulating a lot of other questions for me here. I'm kind of writing them down on a little pad to the side, and I'm trying to think of the best way to organize them where I'm not jumping you all over the map here. I guess the next thing I'll ask you is about, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not calling you old here, but you've been in the business for a good while. And that allows you the perspective to see changes and things that are occurring throughout. And, and like you had said in the clinician aspect, whenever I'm sending out emails to apply to expos and stuff, my my first sentence is always, my name's Daniel Dolphin. I'm one of the 1,287,413 horsemanship clinicians out there because that's what it feels like to me these days. But what are some of the things that you've seen for good and for bad through the industry? Like, like I feel like in breeding, for instance, we're riding a very different horse now than what there was in the 60s and the 70s. The athletic potential, the, the mind of them. Uh, like in the cutting world, if you were going to be starting horses and riding them in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s, you you had better be a hand. You you better not be scared of some rough stuff. And, you know, you were going to have some calluses and some scars by the time it was all said and done. And like with the introduction of horses like Highbrow Cat, a lot of that blood has been tamed down and we have a much more manageable horse than we had like with the little peppies and the smart little lenas and that sort of stuff. So, so sort of in that context, what, what sort of changes have you seen and, and maybe for the worst, maybe there are some things that you feel like we are, we're not at the peak of, we have kind of regressed and lost the, the vision a little bit. What's, what's your perspective there? Well, the industry has become so much more specialized as far as the competitions are concerned. When you talk to the generation prior to us, these guys that were out training horses, they trained all around horses. And when they went to shows, I mean, they showed them in the cutting and the Western pleasure and the trail, and they might enter them in the calf roping and the pole bending and, and they just made all around horses. And so you just don't see that anymore not not at the higher levels i mean at the very lowest levels people are still kind of doing that thing but it's so much more specialized and as we were talking about earlier if you begin to rattle off a bunch of breeding of reigning horses 
I'd just kind of be looking at you with glazed over eyes. I, it wouldn't mean that much to me because I'm not a reigning trainer. I don't travel in those circles, and I don't know that much about them. Where it used to be, there was a lot more crossover. But if you have a world-class reigning horse, he, I'll, I'll just say it, he's not going to make a cutting horse. I, you go ahead and pay the best cutting horse in the world to train that horse, and nine out of ten times, he's going to be pounding his head against the wall because he does one thing very well, but he's not going to do something else. Having said that, yes, as far as the, the trainability of these horses and the good-mindedness of these horses – the athleticism. We've gotten so smart in our breeding. You know, you've seen these pictures of, of these horses or watch the videos of them running down there and dragging their butt and, and sliding. And like, wow, that is unbelievable. How do you train them to do that? Well, here's the deal. In, in one context, that horse was born doing that. You don't train a horse to do that. I don't, I don't care who you are. It, if, if, if you give the best reigning horse trainer, you know, old Dobbin over there, you know, that, that's half warm blood, half Appaloosa, he ain't going to train him to do that. But really smart people have, have, have worked hard putting these genes together and creating these bloodlines of horses they want to drag their butt. Do they need training? Does it need to be developed in the cutting? Do they... Do they need to learn how to work a cow? Yeah, but but they're just ate up on the inside of, of that wanting to come out if you give them a little bit of direction. And so when I watch an old video or see an old picture of, of a Hall of Fame guy, some uh, you know, a name of the past that maybe I, you know, was a generation before me, but those were the guys. And and I look at their horse, you know, the way they stopped them or the way they work on a cow, I said, what? Looks kind of funky. To me, I know the guy is supposed to be really good, but you know what? It was a different time. And and hats off to that guy because he didn't have the privilege of riding the horses that that I ride today. They had to ride some some, you know, numb-minded, hard-headed suckers, bronchy horses, uh just tough, tough horses. They had to get them to play that game. And it's amazing they, they were able to teach them anything. Now is there some downside to all that? I think I think there is. And and I don't know how much of, of it is the the dis, discipline specific genetics that we have pumped into these horses and how we have bred a narrower narrower uh, track of horses and uh, somebody said if, if you if you get a good one they call it line breeding if you get a bad one they call it inbreeding but there was the same process to, to get them there. But I'm thinking that in creating these great horses that we have today, I think we're dealing with some, some structural problems and some, some lameness issues uh, that some of those horses that were a little tougher to train a generation ago, tell you what, they were sound. <laughs> you, you couldn't hardly cripple them. And you better have a good relationship with your bet and you better have a line of credit too, because it's amazing what we're doing to keep them going. But, you know, we could take a football player or a basketball player from 50 years ago that was the best in the business. They might not make the team today because the sport has evolved and it's changed. And they were the best for their time. And, again, it's it's fun to watch the old tapes of, 
you know, the, the way us cow horse people used to do our raining patterns, it was crude. It was rough. And it was there, there was no hesitation. It was a flying around there, you know, like maniacs, their horses' heads up in the air, their eyeballs are bulging out of their heads. And those were the world champions. That that don't cut it anymore. You know, it's been great for for our particular slice of the industry and the cow horse thing when we begin to learn something from the rainers and begin to adopt some of what they were doing to get those horses traveling so nice in the raining pattern. And now our horses are nicer in the raining. And then some of those cutters begin to play in the cow horse thing and they come over with their cutting horse skills and just blow us away in that one portion of our competition. And it used to be, if you were really strong in the cutting and could kind of get by the raining, if you had a poor score down the fence, you were still so far ahead, you were good or mix and match it however you want. If you're really good in the raining and didn't know much about the cutting, but just kind of survived it, you, you could still do good. Not anymore. The horses are so good. The trainers are so good. You got to be strong in all three events uh, to make it. And so, you know, a lot of it is it, it's driven by finances, by the money that's in the industry. And it, and I, which is not necessarily bad, but it's driven by our desire to excel and get better. And, and I'm thankful I get to ride the horses of this generation. I mean, man, they just feel like they want to be trained. I mean, not that one, one couldn't butt me off tomorrow. I mean, they'll, they'll do some stuff. Like they're all stick horses, but, but they, they want to play this game. And the world-class dressage horses, they will, wow, how do they get them to, to animate that trot? And where, where does that suspension come from? How do you get them to do that? Hey, they were born doing it. Todd Bergen. Uh, is just a great, great horseman, uh, made his way in the raining, used to work for Bob Avila, then went out on his own. And I'm just thinking about him because my son-in-law, Chris, uh, has this podcast called Cow Horse Full Contact. And he has interviewed many, many of the Hall of Famers and old timers in our industry and, and just so fun to listen to him. But he interviewed Todd Bergen the other day. But Todd made a comment one time. He was so good in the raining and he's doing the cow horse thing. But when he He'd go and do the reining portion. His head, his horse's head would travel so much lower. And, and in the reining, they're kind of looking for those lower-headed horses, not those horses' heads that are up like that. It's just the way the style is. And somebody asked him, he said, Todd, how do you get your horses to travel around so low-headed? He said, I buy them like that. What, what do you mean you buy? He said, I'm not going to buy some horses running around like a giraffe and think I'm going to put on some gimmick on his head and, and jerk on his mouth long enough to get his head down. I'm going to be looking at this yearling loping around the round pen. Hey, he kind of wants to travel around there and carry himself kind of low-headed. He kind of gets on his hawks. When he turns around, he says, I buy him like that. And then one other quick anecdote of Todd's. He talked about he was working for Bob Avila and – kind of put him on the map because he, he won the reigning futurity while still as an assistant trainer to Bob Avila. And, but, it, but it really made him begin to stand out. And, hey, Todd Bergen's like a guy. He's like a player. He's not just an assistant to Bob Avila. And he, he, he said that win was a big deal. And he just mentioned in passing before we went on to the next subject. He said, now, if you looked at the tape today, you know, you wouldn't think that much about it. But at the time – that was state-of-the-art. That won the futurity. 
But what, what won the futurity in, in almost every discipline 30 years ago? Mm-hmm. Not anymore. And, and maybe some of it is because our styles have changed and maybe not always for the, for the better. But, but in large part, I think the bulk of it, it has been the fact that we have improved. Our horses have gotten better. We understand horse psychology better. We understand the biomechanics of horses and how they do maneuvers better. We're not just going to make them do it. You, I mean, you can make a horse do some things for a while, but, but you're not going to be competitive and win for very long if you're just making them do it. That's not what the, what the guys on top are doing. Well, why don't we, I guess for a minute, I will, I'll bring you back to a little competition that you were in a few years ago called Road to the Horse. Do you remember that one? I remember. Yes, I was there. Well, tell us about that. That, that, that had to be the kind of thing that doesn't just disappear from your mind. So, so what was winning that like? Well, Road to the Horse was the brainchild of uh, Tootie Bland and her husband. They envisioned having this cult starting competition. I don't, I'm not aware of anything like it ever transpiring before they did it. And they did it for the, at the first time at the stockyards right out there uh, in the middle of town in Fort Worth down Main Street, brought in some panels and some dirt. And I think it was Pat Pirelli and Josh Lyons and, oh, who was the third one? Anyway, so this thing began to build some momentum. It began to become a thing, and it was capturing people's attention. They were writing about it in the magazines. And, and if you were going to road to the horse, hey, I mean, you were a player in this deal. Uh, but it was Tootie Bland's and then her, her husband unfortunately passed away way too early in life, but she continued his legacy in building this into the brand that it became, but it was her puppy. And there was a, you could apply to participate in road to the horse and be a contestant. You can send in a videotape and why you want to be a part, but ultimately Tootie Bland was going to decide who she wanted there. And in all reality, it's not a bad thing. You know, who's going to fill seats and and what kind of lineup can I put together that people want to buy tickets and come see it? So, you know, all the major players in the pond or the majority of them that do this kind of thing have been invited to row to the horse. So it was on my radar and I thought, yeah, that'd be cool. You know, again, I wasn't the biggest fish out there, but I was out here doing my thing. And Dr. Robert Miller from California used to write prolifically for Western Horseman magazine is a veterinarian, uh, like it or not. You know, he coined the term full imprinting and wrote the book about it. And he was a mate and still alive today with major force in the industry. And he judged road to the horse for years and him and I were doing a few things together. And so he knew of me and he recommended me say, Hey, you might consider Richard Winters. Uh, I think he has what it takes. He can be a part and, and so we got an invitation to come and do it. Uh, and that was a big deal for us because at that time, she was doing it to a sold-out crowd. She was packing them out. Uh, and so we're talking, you know, 8,000 people, you know, buy an expensive ticket and sit there and watch it for three days. And so the year, first year I went there and had the privilege of competing, you know, it just kind of worked out and drew the right kind of horse and they wanted to play that game and I was able to win it. Since that thing had been going on for a few years, there were some smaller cult starting competitions, maybe 
maybe somebody who's doing an expo and they would do a, a little cult starting competition along with their ex expo or maybe a county fair would throw that in run loosely along the format of road to the horse and so i had competed in a couple of those uh and and had won a couple of those and so i had a little experience doing it and and we were doing horsemanship demonstrations where i would start a cult right in front of the audience right there and you know with with few exceptions you know i'd be up and riding it while the people were sitting right there and nobody ever ridden it before and so i had a little technique and it didn't originate with me and many guys were doing it where you could kind of get them up and going and get them trotting loping around the pen and survive the experience where they broke no <laughs> really broke but but you could kind of get along with them uh, and then you know open the round pin and, and go out and ride them around the arena and you know if if things went all right maybe you can get them to go over the obstacles and and do that thing so that was a great deal. And then they write about you in Western Horsemen if you win that deal. And in all reality, Daniel, for years, and I think it's still this way, if you get invited to that event, this is how it was, if you, unless you went out there and did something really stupid, which I can't even think of an instance, you know, I mean, that was, that was so rare because you didn't get invited if you didn't have the goods. You weren't able to pull it off. The crowd was so appreciative of everyone's efforts, you know, it just wasn't unusual for every single participant to get a standing ovation for what they had accomplished over the course of those three days. And so just getting to go was a feather in your cap. And uh, and there's guys today that's still in their bio, say they were a road to the horse participant. They never won it, but but they got to go. And a lot of guys never got to go. So, so yeah, it, it was a big deal. And and then the expos start calling you up because, okay, hey, this guy just won Road to the Horse and we just read about it in the magazine. And, and chances are people will come to our expo if we ask little Richie Winters to come and, and do his little dog and pony show out here. So, so yeah, it was only a good thing. And so we thank Tootie Bland for, for giving us that privilege. And in subsequent years, uh, we were continued to be involved with the event. Uh, I commentated for the event and, and that was the big joke. It's like the, the NFL quarterback, when he can't throw the football anymore, they just let him talk about throwing the football. And so I commentated the event, and then I judged the event. And, you know, uh, Tootie Bland went on to sell the the event to Western Horsemen and their port, parent company, the, the Morris Corporation. And it's still going today. I don't know that it has quite the, the that thing that it had for a few years, but it but it's still a thing, you know. And, and people are going to go, and they're going to watch it this year. Sounds like they're doing an international – Flavor this year with uh, Ken McNabb here representing the U.S. and then guy from Australia and a guy from Canada and and I bet both those guys are really good and I've never even heard of them. <laughs> but the, but there's a lot of people that can do this now. I yes, thought there were just I thought there were just like six people in the world that could do this. Nope, <laughs> there are a lot of people and they're doing a good job too. Yes, sir. I did want to talk with you a little bit about the Vaquero side and the influence and one of my niches in this business, I'm best known for information on bits and stuff like that. Um, I would say there's probably no group that I have ever looked into that has more inconsistencies within it as to what the path is 
than the vaquero and those guys are ready to fight you if you disagree like if if uh if it doesn't have a theodore on it you're on this side of the river it's still a hackamore if you're on the other side of the river it's not and they're ready to fight like it, it's a big deal <laughs> with some of those guys so i have seen as you're riding some horses you seem to take what I would consider a non-traditional path. So some of those guys think that snaffle bits are of the devil and, and so forth. And I, I know you use those some, and, and you go through a Bosalita or a Bozal period at Hackmore, or however you want to, your uh, particular thoughts of naming it are. Uh, but I don't think that you necessarily go straight into a spade after that. Sometimes you're going with some mouthpieces with tongue relief and, and other things like that. Is that a fair assessment or do you, do I have you pegged wrong or, or, or what, what's your typical, if there is a typical progression there for you? Yeah. Um, well, in the national ring cowboys association, that's, that's what I'm training horses for. That's where I go and compete. There is a progression of training. If you go on the website, there'll be a little, logo it says where tradition is not forgotten and of course the cynical side of me will say yeah we don't do it we just haven't forgotten it because things are always evolving and this whole thing daniel this is an art and everybody that's good at it is an artist you go ahead and you take 20 artists and put them in a room and start getting their opinion about well what what is the best kind of watercolor to use and, and what's the best uh, formation of, of clay? How, how much, uh, how much uh, granular material do you put in? Everybody's got an opinion. You know, if, if we were scientists, so you know what? Here's the formula, boys. This is it. And you can argue it all day long, but if you don't put in this number and this number and this number, you will not get that answer. Uh, and so you don't debate science as much as art. When it's an art, we can all have strong opinions and you know what? I think we just need to grant each other a little latitude to express our art in the way that kind of fits us the best. If I'm here in my office, I got a bunch of pictures on the wall, and I think they look nice, and we could call it art up there, right? rightfully so. But it might not fit in your house. But I, I go to your house, and I see something on your wall. I say, well, <laughs> that's not art. Look at that. Well, how ignorant of me, just because it wouldn't fit in my office, just because I wouldn't hang it on my wall, I'm not going to call it art? No, there's all different kinds of art. And, you know, you now, you know, uh, borders of states have, have been erased and the, the Internet allows for the free flow of information and guys travel all over the United States. And so you don't see regional things like you used to see as much. But when guys waltz down here with rawhide hackamores and spade bits, these Texas guys with their, with their grazing bits and their cutting horses, so what are you going to do with that stuff? That was a West Coast thing. And they were riding down here from Arizona to New Mexico and Texas. They're all riding in split reins. And we're riding with reins and romels out there in California. And what, are you, what is that? You know, and different regions and, and the origins of that had to do with the way they handled cattle and the way the country was and, and, and how that evolved early on. But now, you know, we, everybody's doing things to kind of fit their thing. So I, I was talking about the cow horse thing. We follow a timeline in developing our horses where we start them and we showcase them for the first time at the end of their three-year-old year. 
at the largest show of the year called the World Championship Snaffle Bit Futurity. And these horses are ridden in a snaffle bit, and they do all three events. They cut, they rain, they go down the fence, and the upper end of those horses are super cool. They, they're riding them two-handed, and they're just in that plain smooth snaffle, but these horses are unbelievably broke. Now, remember the little slogan where tradition is not forgotten? And what tradition? Well, we're talking about the Vaquero tradition. So, magically, I bring up this Vaquero from the grave. Been dead for 150 years. I say, hey, Juan, like, do you know what this is? I hold up a snaffle bit. Oh, yeah, that's a snaffle bit. I know, I know. He said, my wife used that on the plow horse. I put that on the, on the plow horse, and she goes and plows our, our garden with that. But he would never, ever put that snaffle bit on his cow horse. Those old-timers started their horses in the hackamore, and then they went on to the two-rain and went on to the bridle. But our industry has evolved. And I asked Benny Catrone one time, who was kind of a bridge to the old Vaqueros. He knew a lot of those guys. I said, what happens if we're, if we're showcasing the Vaquero tradition? How come our biggest thing is the Snapple Bit Futurity? How did that happen? He says, you know, in the 50s and 60s, guys like Don Dodge and a few others came along and said, hey, guys, you can get your horses a lot broker a lot better, a lot faster. Here, put this on. Let me show you. And we just recognize that we could get them broke because here's the deal, Daniel. There is a book, you know, Ernie Morris did a lot to, to capture the Vaquero traditions in his artwork and book. And Lewis Ortega was the master rawhide braider and he wrote a book. And both those guys alluded to the Vaqueros of old and a method that they had to begin to teach their horses to neck rein. You want to know what it was? They would throw them on the ground, pull their head around, and they said, you can take a heavy stick, a little club, a ball-peen hammer, it wouldn't matter, and just begin to pound the side of their neck. Just get it really sore. Then when you get them up and you lay that rein across there, it's going to lay across that sore neck, and they're going to want to move away from it. These were the vaqueros that we esteemed. These are the vaqueros that we put up on a pedestal. But you know what? We, we've evolved. We've, we've, we've gotten smarter. We understand more about horsemanship now. So now in our deal. That's not how we sensitize them anymore, huh? <laughs> yeah. yeah just, you know, yeah, I mean, it, it, it almost sounds like you're just making that up, Richard. You know, it's like you can't even get your head around that. You know, it's just ridiculous. We showcase them as snaffle bitters. And then we are set up in our aged events as four- and five-year-olds to show them in the hackamore. For the uninformed, we're not talking a mechanical hackamore. We're talking a Bozell-type hackamore. could be made out of latigo leather. could be made out of rawhide. can't be something cheaply made that has a, a, a cable core. It has to have a, a, a rawhide braided core in it. And we ride those horses for two years in the Bozell and show them that way. Then we have one year of eligibility to show them on what we call the two rein. So we are highlighting the training phases of these horses over the course of four and five years. The two rein is where they wear a very thin, narrow bozel called a bozelito with Makati reins. But also now, this is oftentimes beautiful, beautiful and ornate 
cheap pieces on a Spanish style bit that could be anything from just a, a low ported half breed to a spade bit. And the idea was to allow that horse to carry that very sophisticated bit. And, and I use that term on purpose because some people will look at a bit that looks severe. Well, is it severe or is it sophisticated? You know, a spade bit is not necessarily a severe bit, but it is a very sophisticated bit. And there, there's a lot of understanding that a horse has to have to use that single bit. And so the idea was to carry that bit for a whole year while you could still help the horse with your thin Makati reins and the Bozelle. So if things got a little fast and you were in the lane having, having to stop a cow, you could get your horse over there without pulling on those bridle reins and that bit that this horse is still trying to figure out. And as the months go by, you begin to pick up on your Romel range more and more and engage that bit and that chin strap and using the Bozolito less and less. But again, when you, if you get in a little jackpot or things get a little fast, you could always go back to that. So we have a year of eligibility to show our two rain horses. And then after that, they are bridle horses. And, and that that's the epitome and, and the goal of, I don't know why we use this word. It, it's a weird word, finished, you know, a finished bridle horse. I don't know if they're ever finished, but now we're riding them one hand. Uh, it has to be some type of corded bit. Could be something as simple as, as just a little half breed, but it has to have a roller on it and can be something as sophisticated as having, uh, you know, a, a high port and, and a big spoon spade and braces and everything. But that all originated on the West Coast. It came up from the Mexicans and the Spaniards. And if you were from Ohio, I mean, now you would see that stuff, but but that wasn't part of your paradigm. If you were from Pennsylvania or, or even down in Texas, they were they were training them and riding them a different way. But that's just what I grew up around. Now, to get a little more specific, even though that's the way we showcase them, we're not allowed to show them any other way. We can show them that snaffle bit as three-year-olds, hackamore horses as four- and five-year-olds, two-rain, and then the broad. That's the way the cow horses are shown. You can't put something else on them. You can't have some little transition bit, you know, a little Billy Allen or correction bit or a little solid mouthpiece without a roller. No, 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 nothing like that. you got to follow these guidelines because we honor that tradition. Having said that, and I know just about all the major players in this business. i got most of them in my phone, and we could call them right now. And I go and ride with those guys because they're better than me. And I like to learn from them. And when I watch them ride, they put a lot of stuff on their horses. You know, they, even though we show them very specifically and only in, in that, but those Hackamore horses, we might ride them at home in a correction bit or a Billy Allen or, or a, a little low ported solid mouthpiece or whatever, mix and match, less vote multi-time world champion, pretty well retired now. Got to be pushing 80. He's got to be in his 70s. But he began to have a line of bits, and he would do these, like you do, these little bidding bits and bidding seminars, and he might do it at the futurity. And he's, you know, trying to peddle his bits, and but he's talking about, you know, all the different equipment. And he made a comment, and when he made this comment, I didn't know it to be true. I know it to be true now, but I thought, what? Are you kidding me? That's what he said. He says, we're here at the Snaffle Bit Futurity, and there are between 100 and 200 of the, of the nicest three-year-olds in the country, and they are going to go and cut, and they are going to rain, and they're going to go down the fence, and the upper end of those horses are going to be wild, super cool. 
and they're all going to be shown in a plain, smooth, snapple bit. He said, I can go out to that barn right now, and I'll go aisle after aisle after aisle, and there's 200 horses out there. If I can find 10 that have not been ridden in something else other than that snapple bit this year, he said, I bet I can't find 10, mm-hmm. you know? And so I'm, I don't think it needs to be a secret. We're not trying to pull the wool over anybody's eyes, but this is where the sport is. This is how we've evolved. We mix and match. We try something on one horse. Uh, I've got some bits hanging up in my tacker, but hey, that looks kind of cool. I'm going to try that. Tried it for a couple of days. I haven't put it on a horse in four years. I know I didn't, didn't fit me, didn't work for my horses. In all reality, you could you could clean me out and and take about 75% of my stuff, and I'd be I'd be fine as long as I could. I could ear tag the 25% that you didn't steal because about 75% of it, I don't use very much, but, but you know, it's like guys that are into guns or fishing rods or whatever. You just think, Oh, that's cool. I got to have one of those, you know, and you just collect that stuff. And, and if you find one that, that brings you some value, then, then that's cool too. So, and not everybody that I deal with, at the clinics, especially well, especially at the clinics, the horse expos, they're not all on the rain cow horse track. They're not going to do that. They just got a horse. They just want to ride their horse, and maybe they want to compete in, I don't know, cowboy dressage or mounted shooting or or whatever they want to do, and they they just want to have a better horse. And, well, what what bit are you riding them in today, and, and how's that working for you? And, uh, well, you've been, you know, your horse is eight years old. He's in this snaffle bit, and that's the only thing you've ridden him in. You know, we could we could try something else here because he's probably pulling on you. <laughs> I bet he is after this amount of time. Care how good your hands are. And so to to mix it up, here's one more fun story in regard to bits since you're into this, Daniel. Oftentimes at the clinics, I like to go around and, and everybody's mounted. I'll just go one by one and just talk about everybody's mouthpiece. So what are you riding your horse in? Well, I got my horse in, a, uh, you know, just a twisted wire snaffle. I got my horse in a in a, a miler bit. And, boy, hats off to Daler Meyer. Myler, he's built like this whole line of bits within the industry. And, you know, half the people that show up my clinics are riding some kind of miler bit. You look at those bits, they're really all fashioned after the Billy Allen, the three-piece bit that would not fold all the way over. You know, unlike a dog bone snaffle that you could do that to, these only, you don't do that. But they work independent from side to side. So, and this gal tells me what her bit is. And this guy's riding in a hackamore. And this guy's riding in whatever. And then this gal, right, walk up to her and what are you riding? So, well, I'm riding in the perfect bit. Oh, you really like the, the perfect bit. Man, this really fits your horse. Well, that's cool. Well, what is it? Uh, what's the mouthpiece? Well, it's the perfect bit. Well, I know you just told me that. I'm wondering what 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 is it though? She said it's the perfect bit. <laughs> the manufacturer of this bit put a label on it, and the label is the perfect bit. How smart is that? If I, why wouldn't I? If I was going to make a bit and try to sell it to people, why wouldn't I call it the perfect bit? That was the perfect name, but it just struck me funny. You know, there's. There's nobody from the government that is regulating this. There's no industry standard where somebody's going to come and check. You can call anything, anything. And that's why, you know, you you run across some very legalistic, Vaquero kind of guys, you know, the flat brim guys and, and out west. And I worked on those big ranches out there and appreciate everything that that has to offer. But here's, here's my deal with those guys that are just a little bit legalistic. 
about this and and no you got to go from the from the the five eighths to the three eighths hackamore and, and then you you know you got to have this and that and don't put a snapple bed on all this stuff dude okay well that's all cool but when i watch them ride their horses when the chips are down and things get a little fast they don't really look that good horse comes out of the bridle you know, and I mean, when they're just kind of jogging around the arena and stop and back up, it all looks pretty cool. But the game we play is fast. And mm-hmm. and those suckers, got to they got to stay in there. They got to stay with you. And if you're going to be that legalistic with me and say it can only be this way, show me that it works when the stars are not all aligned. Show me that it works when the prairie fire is coming your way. And all of a sudden, you know, it, it, it we're hitting it. And it, it, if it's working for you, then it's like, okay, I'm in with it. But if not, it's like, well, okay, more power to you, buddy. One of my favorite sayings there is that traditions are for fanning the fire, not for worshiping the ashes. And uh, I think there's a little bit to that. Yes, sir. That's good, Daniel. I like it. <laughs> Just have two more questions for you. You had mentioned that your father was a preacher, and it looks like you're getting involved in some cowboy church stuff. So I just wanted to ask you a little bit about the spiritual side of, of things. It seems oh, like you no, definitely yeah, have that. No, uh, that's all a secret. I don't talk about that. No, I'm, <laughs> I'm kidding you, Daniel. I, I appreciate you asking that. Uh, you know what? I don't know if any of your listeners would know. There's a contemporary of mine. What a great guy. Brian Newbert is his name. He's out west travels around the country doing clinics. His kids are extremely talented. They're all horse trainers. Brian spent a lot of time with Tom Dorrance, a lot of time with Ray Hunt. And we were out doing this stuff and people were coming to clinics and he's a man of faith, a great Christian man. And it seemed to me like a lot of the people at the clinics and some of the clinicians themselves we're elevating this whole thing to like some spiritual experience, almost to the point that we were worshiping this experience that we were having with this horse. And Brian, I was talking to him and we got to talking about that. And he says, he said, I love horses. This is all I've ever done. That's all I've ever wanted to do. He said, but when I die and go to heaven, am I just going to want to saddle something up and, and, and kick them and lope around there. Like I did that during my life. He said, they're just horses. I never heard anybody in the business say that. And nobody loves horses more than me. But you know what, Daniel, they're just horses. And there's always going to be another horse show. There, there's always going to be another clinic to go to. Horses come and go. But what's really going to matter in life? Somebody said that the end of life test is, you know, who did you love and who loved you and what was your relationship to Jesus Christ? That's really all that's going to matter. You don't see that old guy on his deathbed saying, Oh, bring me, bring me those belt buckles that I won back in 1970. I want all my, Oh, bring me that trophy saddle. I want it close to me when on on my diet, my deathbed. That stuff doesn't matter. People don't, not going to care about it then and and so my family the relationship with my wife you know will my kids still say hey dad love you before they hang up 
the phone. Those are the things that really matter. And, and for me personally and my wife, it's our relationship with God that has kept us balanced and centered in this life. I see people that put all of their eggs in the horse basket, you know, and it's like, what would happen if tomorrow, you know, your horse zigs and you zag and all of a sudden you're not getting on one again ever. And that happens, happens every day somewhere. And I think that you have, you have set your life up in such a way that you take the horse away. You got nothing. And I, I don't, I don't want to be that guy. And, and though I'm so involved in horses and I've loved the cowboy lifestyle all my life, I'm just like everybody else out there. And we all still deal with the same stuff in this life. And so my wife and I have the privilege of doing these cowboy churches at the horse expos and the clinics that we do. And, and we do this fun thing now with technology on Zoom, which you know about every Thursday night, Texas time at 8 p.m. called Unbridled. In fact, all your listeners have an invitation. All they have to do is reach out to us and they can join us for 40 minutes because we're too cheap to upgrade our Zoom account. It only goes for 40 minutes where we just share some anecdotes and some life lessons and how God cares about you and God wants you to be successful and God has plans for your life. And, and so nobody, well, yes, there have been, I'm just saying, I put a lot of energy into this horse thing. I put a lot of time. I've, I've thought about it a lot. I've gone to clinics. I've, 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 I've studied, I've watched tapes. I've been consumed by it, but in the end, they're just horses that that's all they are. But, but what about the relationships in my life? And, and, and what about my relationship with God? That that's really what matters. And so thank you for giving me an opportunity to mention that. Well, that was, I, I had told you about the, the uh, compliment or the awkward silence earlier. And I have actually met you. It's been 10 or 12 years ago at one of the first expos we had here in Louisiana. And my tagline when I introduced myself or, or whatever is just I'm a guy who's good with horses. And and I genuinely mean that. As I've kind of traveled around and gotten in the clinician circles and stuff, I'm I have been utterly shocked by some of the egos out there of some of these people. And and it just it's like we're we just are people that play with horses. Like I mean, you know, that we no matter how good you get at that, it's it, you know, you're not a brain surgeon here. I mean, we're we're just playing with horses. So uh, I have always appreciated that about you because that was that time was probably right before the road to the horse and all of that stuff for you. And and I, I consider you to be one of the A players in the game, but you you don't act like it. You know, you you seem like a pretty humble sort of a guy. And uh, as this podcast is getting more and more popular, I have people that are reaching out with suggestions of, hey, I'd love to hear you interview so and so. And and some of those people, I'm just like, look, I I can't have a genuine conversation with that person because. I don't really respect them as a person. I, I think uh, I don't have a good poker face. You know, that, that wouldn't go real well. I'd rather talk with people that I generally genuinely respect. And, and not only are they good with horses, but they're, they're good people too. So I, I do appreciate that about you for sure. I may have asked these questions backwards, given the way that this has gone. But my final question for you was about the legacy within the horse business that you would ultimately like to leave the way that I typically ask it is let, let's say that you, you were going to die in five minutes and you could kind of leave one, one message to the horse world out there. 
this is what I see you doing and this is what you need to do and this is what really matters and so forth. What, what would sort of be that final uh, final thought given given the horse world, not given the, the larger uh, picture we okay. just spoke about there? Yeah, just specific to the industry and the skill sets that we're trying to acquire and, and things like that. Um, you know, I'm, I am hoping that I encouraged people to get out there and play with their horses that you, you can do this. Yeah. Well, we're not doing brain surgery. This is not just for an elite group of people. You don't have to compete in the venues that, that I do. You, you don't have to, you know, wear certain clothes or have a certain kind of saddle. You can do something with horses and they can be so rewarding. And maybe you were a little discouraged and maybe it didn't work out well, or maybe you got hurt with horses at one time. There is still a pathway forward for you. And I hope that I have created a pathway for people, whatever skill set they are to continue on and enjoy the fulfillment of having this, this activity that uh, can be very rewarding, but we've got to invest in ourselves a little bit. And uh, if, we, if we want to be successful, it's going to take a little effort on our part, but, uh, but you can be successful. So I hope that I have created that for people. Uh, and if that's a little bit of my legacy, then, uh, yeah, how cool is that? Well, very good. Uh, and I'm gonna I'm gonna go back on what I said. I actually have another question for you now that I said I was gonna ask you earlier. Uh, when I asked you about your pet Phoebe, you were talking about people that that don't ride their horse. Uh, and this is also one of those pet peeves that I have. I, I consider myself kind of a minimalist with the groundwork. I do as much as I need to do, but then when I've got that done, I go ride. And I've I've definitely seen some people that almost get into what I would call a, a religious zealotry or a ritualistic aspect where they got to do 20 minutes of groundwork or, or, or whatever. And, and I just, I'm going, you're missing the boat here. Go ride your horse, right? That's just supposed to be the, the point. So, so why don't you tell us some of your thoughts on that? The go ride your horse movement. That'd be a great bumper sticker. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we're getting going back to the nuts and bolts here a little bit, which is fine with me. You know, years ago, and, and Pat Pirelli, you know, he developed this whole thing of natural horsemanship. He coined the term, and and then he'd, he'd have all these, the, the like, the seven games. And and you had, if you were in his program, you you bought the tape and had all the equipment. And, and these seven games were all ground games that you, that you would do with them, you know. When I first started training horses, I remember telling people, it says, go ahead and leave them for a month. Uh, I'll spend the first two weeks getting him ready to ride. And then the next two, then the following two weeks, I'll ride it. Well, as time went on, then I, I learned some things that I could do on the ground to get that horse prepared to be able to step on him in just a little bit and, and ride him around. So I was, I was no longer putting long lines on him and driving him around, you know, the, the round pin. And people that, you know, want to drive their horse with long lines, that's fine. That's, that's a way to do it. Nothing the matter with that. But I didn't know how not to do that. I just, I just had to do that. So I got into, you know, I'm going to get them saddled up and I'm going to send them around. I'm going to disengage their hindquarters and get them loosened up and all that's good. But I realized in what, just a few years ago, exactly what you said, I started training my horses to expecting that. So if, if you don't go out here first with a halter and lead rope, 
after you've strapped that dead cow on my back, and if you don't send me around to the left and send me around to the right and send me through the full range of motions, I'm going to buck you off when you get on me. And so I trained him to need that. And now when I'm starting these Colts and the kids that I'm helping start Colts here, I'm saying, hey, let them. I mean, do whatever, take whatever time you need to get this horse safe. I don't want you to do anything stupid, but our goal is to be able to, you know, slip his broad along, lead him out from the barn, lead him over the arena, and and get on him. And and if we have to send him around some circles today, how many how many more days are we going to have to do that? Are we going to have to do that for the rest of this month? In the next thirty days, will we not have to do that, or will we still have to do that in the second thirty days? What's your plan here, Johnny? Because I just got to where I had to do it, you know. And now I say, you know what? I'm not going to let these horses train me to do do that. So now I'm just. Again, I'm, I'm going to take whatever time it takes first. I'm not going to be stupid about it, but but I'm going to teach those colts, and I'm going to get on you, and I am going to ride you now. So I remember Tom Dorrance just observing, and for people that maybe don't know these names, Buck Brandman says he learned from Ray Hunt. Ray Hunt says he learned from Tom Dorrance, and Tom Dorrance says he learned from the horse. Uh, and he, so he's kind of the guru of this thing. and So he's watching this this the industry develop and watching people like Pat Pirelli and John Lyons and then Clinton Anderson and, and everybody doing their thing and all the groundwork that they're doing. And he was looking at that and said, I don't know. I think they, I think they're just doing too much there on the ground. I think it's time to get on them, you know, and, and watching some horses kind of get a little bit of a bad sour attitude, you know, about it. But now Daniel, there's a flip side to everything. And there's within the industry now, there's this whole, <laughs> there's an association of liberty where you, people work their horses in liberty, you know, and get them to follow them around. They can kind of lunge them around without a line and, and, and do stuff. And, and a lot of people are gravitating towards that because I, I've got to grant people a little bit of slack because there are some people, the station in their life, whether it's physical or psychological or whatever it is, they're not going to ride. They, they are, they are, they are not going to ride. They just, they, they can't get on anymore. Maybe they've gained too much weight. Maybe they got a bad hip. They don't have the equilibrium. They don't have the balance anymore to stay on a horse. If he zigs and they sag, they're going to get hurt. Maybe they got hurt really bad. Am I going to tell those people, well, that's it. You're out on horses then because I'm the guy that says you got to ride. And so again, every time you emphasize one thing, you got to kind of go back and say, no, wait a minute. I'm not saying, such and such. And so if people are finding something to do with their horses and they can go do some ground games with them and do some Liberty work with them and they're getting fulfillment from that, who am I to say, well, that ain't horsemanship. That ain't, that ain't doing horse stuff, you know, cause you're not riding. No, I'm not going to be that guy either. But just in my own journey, just in the last few years, you know, of learning all that groundwork and how important it was, I realized Okay, I think my Colts are training me a little bit to have to do this little ritual first. So, but but you've already realized that, and a good point to bring up. Well, I just don't want to see people use it as a crutch or an excuse. You right. know, like like you say, if, if you actually are furthering things, then uh, then so be it. Or if it's all you can do right now, then then so be that. You have a, a legitimate reason. I just don't want I don't want to see you succumb to fear. And make this the excuse. That that's I guess my point. Absolutely. Yeah, you betcha. Nope. I'm still the guy that says, 
don't show me a picture of your horse. Go out and ride your horse. Get on and ride them. They're not going to get better. They're not going to – that problem that you're having right now, it's not going to get better talking about it. They got to be rode. Well, Mr. Winters, I cannot thank you enough for coming on. Uh, we will have links in the show notes to your website and, and various social media things. I'll also do a link to the video with uh, Sarah that you had alluded to earlier and all of that stuff. Uh, I'm a little embarrassed to admit I've listened to the Cow Horse Full Contact podcast before. I had not put two and two together, though, so now I know that's your son-in-law on there. Uh, so, anyway... But it's been a pleasure chatting with you. I certainly thank you for coming on. So. Well, you bet, Daniel. I'll look for our paths uh, crossing sometime, hopefully and sooner rather than later. And thank you for what you're doing to uh, get the word out uh, to horse enthusiasts out there. People are hungry for information. So uh, thanks for what you do. We'll see you next week for another episode of Adult Onset Horsemanship. I've been your host, Daniel Dolphin.